Welcome to the 43rd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio magazine podcast. Ear to the Ground features interviews and field reports related to sustainable agriculture, family farming, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. In Ear to the Ground 42, we featured scientist Tyrone Hayes, who gave a presentation on the environmental and health risks posed by the herbicide atrazine. In this episode, Paul Watzko will speak about atrazine research he's done. For 16 years, Watzko worked as a hydrologist, first for the Minnesota Department of Agriculture and later for the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. Watzko's extensive water sampling in southeast Minnesota's Whitewater River has shown that atrazine contamination has risen to dangerously high levels over the years. Watzko's research and willingness to speak in public about it may have gotten him into trouble. He was fired by the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency in the spring of 2007 after he made a request to testify before a Minnesota legislative committee. Waska's testimony, which he was not allowed to give at the legislature, was going to focus on his research and how he feels voluntary best management practices promoted by the Minnesota Department of Agriculture are not adequately dealing with the atrazine issue. He also was going to speak about the role row crops, such as corn, play in water pollution problems. Waska has filed a federal whistleblower lawsuit charging that his freedom of speech has been violated. On October 10, 2007, the Land Stewardship Project and several other groups worked with Minnesota Senator John Marty and Representative Ken Jumper to bring Hayes and Waska to the Minnesota Capitol, where they were able to talk about atrazine, the importance of scientific integrity, and what needs to be done to protect environmental and human health. The following presentation by Watska was given by the hydrologist during a special event on the evening of October 10th to raise money for his legal fund. Here's your chance to hear the information state officials didn't want presented at the legislature during the spring of 2007. Uh, I, I want to mention some studies that I did uh, with Dr. Paul Cable up there in the audience. Paul, you got to stand up, take a bow, but, but don't, don't sing. <laughs> um, We were looking at pesticides and precipitation back in the early 90s. I remember when I first heard about it, I thought, why would we want to do that? And Paul said, well, I found some in my backyard. I think he was monitoring it in his backyard. And I thought, what's what's he putting on his plants back there? (laughs) But we conducted a four-year study across the state of Minnesota. And lo and behold, the most commonly found pesticide in rainfall, atrazine. We went to Lake Harriet in cooperation with the Minneapolis Park and Rex Board. And we thought, well, let's look, let's look at what pesticides are in urban runoff. And we found the 2,4-D and the broadleaf dandelion killers, but we also found atrazine. Why are we finding atrazine in an urban watershed? It's used to grow corn. Well, we were also monitoring for pesticides in rain within the Lake Harriet watershed, and lo and behold, pesticides in the rain coming off in stormwater runoff, going into Lake Harriet. Turns out that on a mass balance, over 90% of the atrazine that falls here in the urban area is retained. Now, I bring that up because I want you to know that we're not talking about just a rural problem, a corn-growing problem. I said today in in Senator Marty's hearing, atrazine is an omnipresent compound. It has been in our state's waters for a long, long time, and it's going to be in our state's waters for a long, long time. We need to start taking steps today, now, to reverse that process. We aren't. 
we have not taken the first step. But again, I think we've turned a corner. I want to talk to you about my favorite part of the state, the place I call home, southeastern Minnesota. If you've been down there, you know that it is a land of uh, springs and disappearing streams and caves and trout and just a wonderful, diverse landscape. And this is the way we like to think about it. This is Whitewater State Park, the way it was before the flood. You can't see this anymore, so it's, it's, it's a, just a beautiful place. Um, but if you would go up to our monitoring station just shortly upstream of there, or the, the monitoring station that, that the Minnesota Department of Agriculture has, during a storm event, that's not colored water there. That's, that's the way water gets when we have a storm late spring, early summer, that water turns to chocolate milk. And we really get a big flush of atrazine, as I'll show you in a minute uh, during those events. The karst area is characterized by, like I say, disappearing streams, springs, sinkholes, fractured limestone. But the important thing is that these conditions can result in rapid transport of surface water containing dissolved or soil-bound pesticides into the groundwater. So what we have down there is the conundrum, the Pandora's box. We don't have surface water and groundwater down there. People like to treat it as that, but we don't. It is all one interrelated, connected system. This is the way it looks if you'd cut it through. And, you know, we, we have um, wells that... Um, we have wells that go down into various aquifers. We have uh, caves full of water. The way state agencies treat this is that if that water is there, it is groundwater. If that water is there, it's surface water. And it just so happens that it might take about 20 seconds from water to get from here to there. But if you look at water quality standards between that 20-second difference, it may be an order of 10. It may be an order of 20. We have state agencies that acknowledge the problem, but don't address it. And it's, it's going to be a continuing battle to, to have that uh, looked at. We talk a lot about pesticide use and what pesticide use has been doing. We had some conversations uh, this afternoon about that. What I'll just point out to you is that I'm going to be talking about two chemicals in particular, atrazine and acetochlor. Both are corn uh, herbicides. But... Atrazine use hasn't changed much in the last 15 years. Now, that gets important because there's been state agencies been telling us that we're really doing a great job at, at recommending to people that they should cut back on their rates, not use it under this condition or that condition. But there really hasn't been much difference. Acetochlor, what's interesting about acetochlor, was never registered for use in, this, in the country before 1994. So how does a compound go from zero to three and a half million pounds active ingredient per year? I don't know. I really don't know. Acetochlor has gotten in the news lately because it is the compound that we're finally moving forward on impairments. We have streams that are actually impaired by acetochlor, but it was registered in 1994. Now, I'm an engineer have a hard time adding, but I, I think that's 14 years. 14 years to promulgate a standard. 
During that period of time, we have used over 40 million pounds of acetochlor in this state. 40 million pounds. And now we're just finally getting a standard to evaluate all the concentrations that we've seen during those 14 years. We're not cleaning up anything. We're just acknowledging we've got a problem. That's it. So how does atrazine behave, and, and for that matter, all chemicals uh, down in southeast Minnesota? What we've got is a, a hydrograph here from the middle branch of the, the Whitewater for uh, June is dairy month, right, Ken? But it's also dirty water month. <laughs> um, we have our highest concentrations of atrazine during these peak flow periods, and then it go, goes down to base flow conditions. The red line here is the stream standard, and so what you'll see is during these higher flow events, we'll see uh, violations of the standard. If we look at a one-year hydrograph here, namely between May and April of May of 2000 and April of two, 2001, we have two high flow periods, one in the spring and uh, early summer, and then one big snowmelt event. If we look at the chemical soup of what pesticides come down during those two distinct high flow periods, what we see is as follows. We've got six, seven compounds occurring between mid-May and mid-July. And then we move to that April snowmelt event, and we just have, and you can't quite see the colors real well here, but again, no surprise to people, atrazine and one of its metabolites, diethylatrazine. Atrazine never really disappears from streams. This is a blue ribbon trout stream in southeast Minnesota. Watershed area 25, just a little bit over 25 square miles. What have atrazine concentrations been doing over this period of time that we, we, we looked uh, at them in the, in the middle branch of the whitewater? You can see that kind of went along. We'd have occasional exceedances of a standard. But then in 2000, 2001, 2002, we really saw a jump. And then in 2004, it even jumped some more. The reason for 2003, it was a little drier year. If we'd been tracking pesticide use just in the middle branch of the whitewater, I'm sure what we'd be able to show is that atrazine use has actually gone up. So we have atrazine use going up, atrazine loss in the streams going up during this period of time. Most of those high flow events, again, are the culprit. But if we again look at the standard, what we'd see about is one in every five samples taken between May of 2000 and July of 2004, we're above our standard. One in five. You can just summarize this atrazine behavior in streams in southeastern Minnesota as follows. You know, we've got base flow concentrations at about four-tenths of a microgram. It's detected nearly 100% of the time. Highest concentrations are about 30 micrograms per liter. We've seen higher concentrations uh, since 2000. Tyrone was talking about endocrine disruption. It turns out that the endocrine disruption threshold level, when he starts seeing um, some of the effects in frogs, is a tenth of a microgram per liter. So we see year in, year out, about four times that amount. Results of a 15-year effort to take atrazine out of our cropping systems. I guess we can look at them objectively because that would be the way to do it. Now, I, I should tell you, we heard, we heard today that the Department of Agriculture would really like to say, well, we held a lot of meetings and we printed a lot of brochures. You know, tell me a state agency that couldn't call success if that was the criteria. <laughs> Print brochures, have meetings, 
That is your taxpayer money at work. I would suggest that we really wanted to do, it would be to get atrazine out of the applications and get atrazine out of the streams. That's what we need to do. They're not doing it. We've had a little bit of talk in the last week or so about the deformities in frogs and the culprit being nutrients. Nutrients from agricultural runoff. I'm going to suggest to you, and I'll back this up a little bit here, um, the same vectors that put atrazine in your streams are the same vectors that put nutrients in the streams. We see a lot of excessive nutrients coming off of farmland. They occur a little bit differently. Nitrates in particular are actually water that's percolated through the ground and don't come off in the storm runoff, they actually come off in the base flow. So the highest concentrations of nitrates we see are during the base flow and they may be in the dead of winter. So you can look at it this way. If you don't have atrazine in the stream at high concentrations, you've got nitrates. At the same time you'd have high atrazine in, the, in, in, in the, the streams, you'd have high phosphorus because phosphorus is moving with the soil particles. So there's very little that doesn't harm, harm frogs in these type of aquatic systems. So with respect to nitrate behavior, we see it 100% of the time. We're approaching the standard. You know, we're upwards of 9 plus, mil, this is milligrams per liter here. And the stream standard with respect to nitrates, is not being followed. If we would start evaluating our streams with respect to nitrates, there might not be a stream in southeastern Minnesota that would not be impaired. That is, if I could just state it in the affirmative, we would have all impaired streams. So I'm going to talk what is just so critical to understand about water quality, and that's water quantity. And I did this nearly 15 years ago with uh, a gentleman by the name of Pete Cooper uh, who works for the NRCS. Land use matters when it comes to hydrology, both in terms of the volume of water that comes off that land and the energy. The energy is measured in terms of peak flow. So with respect to our floods that we had in August, there is some stories that are going to be told, and, and we just haven't put together all the information. I walked out of our house on Sunday morning, and I looked at our, we have a little check dam that contributes from, oh, maybe 15, 20 acres in the back of our house. And I went to that check dam to see how full it was. There wasn't a drop of water in it. That land is in perennial vegetation. It's in well-managed woods. And it's this story here. When you throw in this case, 3.7 inches of rain on a 20-acre field, and you look at woods, it has both a very low energy level in terms of peak flow, and the area under this curve represents the volume of water. Compare that to, and again, this is kind of worst-case scenario here, fall plow, where you've plowed up your field in the fall, and you've got row crops going on it. You can see that you have a tenfold minimum tenfold increase in, in energy, and probably a 20 to 30-fold increase in volume of water. So our cropland that is not well managed will shed a lot of water, and it will put out an incredible peak flow in terms of energy. In terms of water quality, we can compare some of these land use characteristics. 
Again, row crops, continuous corn. If we just look at annual nitrate losses, nearly 50 pounds, compare it with a perennial system, alfalfa, and you decrease that by about a factor of 30. What have we been doing to our landscape in southeastern Minnesota in terms of cropping practices? We've been getting rid of our alfalfa hay. We've been getting rid of our oats. And we've been replacing it with soybeans. We are headed the wrong direction. And this is 2001. I really wanted to update this to 2006, but this data doesn't get accumulated for another couple of years. You know, uh, I won't even be able to see 2006 data for, for at least another year. But 2007, we know there's another million acres of corn in the state. We are headed in the wrong direction if we really want to make some strides in terms of water quality. And again, more corn, more atrazine. So this is the picture that's worth a thousand years. A uh, thousand years. Thousand, <laughs> a picture worth a thousand words. And I will, I will get closer to the end. Uh, but this is, this is the spring of the corn year. These are tiny little corn plants. This field has been plowed. It's been fertilized. And it has been getting atrazine. And when we get a storm event and there's no grassy waterway or conservation measures, this land sheds an immense amount of water and starts to look like this. And it starts to look like, you know, the Dust Bowl days. And realistically, that's, that's the direction we're headed. So one of the concerns I brought forth to Senator Marty's committee uh, this afternoon that is just somewhat dumbfounding to me is the fact that we don't monitor our drinking water for private drinking water wells in southeast Minnesota. I think everyone that has their own well and pumps water into their own kitchen every day and wonders what they're feeding to their kids or their kids' kids has concerns about this. And this has been even more so with the floods because what's happened with the floods is that people's water clarity changes. That gets dirty. And they say to themselves, I better get this checked out. We've had an incredible number of wells that have been testing positive for bacteria. But again, nobody is looking at nitrates. Nobody is looking at pesticides. We know this is a problem, and we know that this is something that has to be correct. So I'm not going to leave you on a bad note. This is my neighbor, Irwin. Irwin is going to be 89 tomorrow. One of his models, I ain't going to get rusty. <laughs> Irwin came to me when... Uh, I had some really dark days this spring. And he said, Paul, I need a new septic. I said, can you help me out? I said, Erwin, we're going to get you three bids, and we're going to explain it to you 14 times, and we're going to make sure you understand what exactly you're getting into, but we're going to get you a new septic. Here he was last week with his new septic. He's got a mound system there. He's a happy man. Hope is a verb with the sleeves rolled up. That's my version of the hands. And for our posterity. Thank you very much. For more on the issue of atrazine and scientific integrity, see the Summer 2007 Land Stewardship Letter. It's available at www.landstewardshipproject.org. That's landstewardshipproject.org. Just click on Newsroom and follow the links to the Land Stewardship Letter. LSP has also posted several blogs on this issue, 
which are available under our Take Action section on the homepage. Send your comments and suggestions about this podcast to me, Brian DeVore, at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org. You can also call me at 612-729-6294. A special thank you goes out to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician who provided Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a very special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member and you'd like to support us, go to landstewardshipproject.org to learn how to join LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank you.